This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeves. Welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heese, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Guys, we have another great episode for you here today. We have, continuing on with our MSU Deer Lab uh, theme, if you will, we have Dr. Bronson Strickland from the Mississippi State University, and he has uh, hopped on here. We had Dr. Steve Damaris on before, so now we're getting Dr. Bronson's take, um, getting into the food plot side of things, getting into some whitetail nutrition, um, what some regular Joe landowners like us can be doing, our largest holes in the bucket. Uh, we talk about managing the population of whitetail versus the amount of habitat. Uh, we talk about, you know, his favorite tree. got to love that. We talk about a bunch of great stuff here. And if you listened to our last episode with Dr. Steve Damaris, um, you know that these guys are a wealth of knowledge. So sit down, grab some notes, your phone, however you can record all these bullet points and information is going to be coming at you because, guys, this is a great one. Uh, I want to thank the listeners. You guys have been awesome. Um, the ones that have made it over to our Apple iTunes account left us some good reviews on there. I am putting together a big shipment of decals coming out real soon. So thank you very much for the guys who have you know left us the reviews on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google. Um, you can go over to Habitat Chat. That's our Facebook group. There's already like 1,500 people up there on that group. So much good information, uh, but we have a post there where if you've left us a review and you haven't gotten a decal yet, go on there, get a hold of us. That way we can know exactly because sometimes iTunes is a little weird on 
and seeing people's real names. Um, I'm going to read here one from Dan Hunter Bowley. The best way to educate yourself fast. I'm amazed with the amount of information one can gain from podcasts. I listen at work when I'm driving. This podcast covers almost everything you need to know about habitat improvements. Thank you so much, Dan. We really appreciate that. That is awesome. And, uh, and, and we just thank you for listening and for leaving that review. I will find you and get you a good decal, my friend. Um, I'll also do another one here from 747 Rooster. Down-to-earth discussion with open minds. I've been working my tough property or topography lands for years to improve all wildlife habitat. Have made many mistakes and learned a ton. I've listened to every podcast starting spring of 2020 and wish I had found this earlier. I'm into the soil health and movement and wish to aid in pursuit going forward however possible. Great job, guys. Scott Duell, Hollow Farm, Wingdale, New York. See, Scott was smart enough to put his name and address in the review. I got you, buddy. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate the review. You know, guys, we just we got to keep pumping this information out, and your reviews really help us stay at the top of the game in the habitat management uh, and habitat podcast world. So thank you very much for doing that. And back to the habitat chat. Like I said, we have 1,500 people over there sharing all kinds of good questions, uh, feedback, projects they're working on every single day. So if you can, hit us up at uh, Habitat Podcast on Facebook, and you can see our group, which is directly related to that page. Or you can just type in Habitat Chat, and uh, you'll see our group pop up there. Again, thank you to all who contribute, both to that and the reviews, and, of course, listening. Now, before we get to uh, Dr. Bronson, I need to thank uh, Killer Food Plots. I talked with Nick today, actually. Um, he's getting ready for his preparation and planting for spring food plots here pretty soon. And we were talking, uh, I'm doing the same thing, and we're talking the Soil Defender product. So his Soil Defender, he actually did some measurements where um, the the microbial bacteria and the, and the stuff inside the Soil Defender has actually been able to eat up and, and get rid of a lot of the salts from our synthetic fertilizers in the past that and, and are able to release those nutrients, those bound-up nutrients, back into the soil. Um, so speaking of that whole, you know, soil movement going forward, I bet our buddy Al Tomenchko will be pretty intrigued by, by that, that information from Nick. And, you know, I actually sprayed a bunch on my lawn the other day. It's all organic, so I wasn't worried about that. And uh, I'm going to get a bunch more for, for my soil and my plants going forward. Now, that is a Soil Defender. That's up at KillerFoodPlots.com. Um, we also have an AquaShield product we want to talk about from him that is good for your ponds. I'm going to do a little more digging on that, see if I can get some firsthand experience uh, from my friend Rob. I know he put some in his pond, um, and we'll get back to you on that. But over at KillerFoodPlots.com, check out the Soil Defender product. You get 10% off and free shipping if you use the code HP10%. HP10%, guys. All seed. Anything you want on there, 10% off or at the top. It's free money. So if you can use that, that would help us out, help Nick out, help you guys out. That would be awesome. Um, I also want to thank the rest of our, our partners. We have Packer Max Cult Packers, Morris Nursery, HuntWise, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Habitat Hook, and Realtree Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for listening and tuning into the Habitat Podcast once again as we become better habitat managers. Now, let's get right to it. Dr. Bronson Strickland, 
with the MSU Deer Lab. Okay, we are back at the Habitat Podcast. We have our uh, friends on here, Mr. Brian Hallbly and Al Tomeshko. You guys have all heard from them before. And our very special guest today, we have Dr. Bronson Strickland from the MSU Deer Lab. How are you doing today, doctor? I'm doing fantastic. I don't know what the weather is in your neck of the woods, but it is absolutely gorgeous here in Mississippi today. I think it was... uh, low 60s this morning and we're probably going to get up in the high 70s uh, just a bluebird day and feeling good feeling grateful grateful spring is here yeah that sounds perfect it's actually the same here in michigan um we had 80 yesterday and i think brian i think that hit you today didn't it yeah it's pushing 80 already just uh turning noontime here so hard to believe for april (laughs) no kidding Al, what's the weather like where you're at today in Ohio? Yeah, well, I'm right between you guys, and it's uh, it's nice. It's real nice here. I don't know. It's probably 75 out right now, and uh, it was beautiful yesterday. It was like low 70s. Today's going to be a little bit warmer. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. feels like mid-May, not, uh, not early April. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Well, you know, sitting here in the uh, podcasting basement, freezing my butt off, and it is nice outside. I should have this reversed somehow, but uh, you know what? That's all right. Let's 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 get right into it. We have Dr. Bronson here. Let's hear about where you were from, you know, growing up, your interest in the outdoors. Maybe paint us a picture on your history. Yeah, you, you bet. Um, so born and raised in, in Georgia, uh, right outside of, of Athens, Georgia, and uh, – Really how I kind of got in this field, uh, really, really lucky, I guess, um, even though my dad uh, was in the outdoors, so to speak. He was more of a, a garden kind of person, and uh, and I, I think you all know what I mean. I've, the, the outdoors attracted me, animals and hunting, it, it was just my passion. I, probably before I was 10 years old, I just became fascinated uh, with with uh, nature, so to speak, and then hunting, and um, and then luckily I was in a place um, at uh, outside of Athens, Georgia, where there's the University of Georgia, and there is a a school there that uh, has this profession, has this degree called wildlife biology, and so literally when I was in junior high, I learned that. There was this profession called wildlife biology. I, I, I literally, I was in eighth grade, and I and I thought at that point, um, there there's really nothing else in this world I can think of that I would rather do than than wildlife biology. Specifically, I found out there's this guy at the University of Georgia that's a deer biologist. He's a professor and a deer biologist. And I just threw up my hands, you know, <laughs> at that young age, you know, am I going to be a policeman? Am I going to be a fireman? A pi- you know, you have all these dreams young men, you know, uh, go go through. But when I found out there is a way you could make a living in this world studying deer, uh, I'm all in. And I was all in from, from, from that point. And so I uh, got my undergraduate degree at the University of Georgia. Then I was also... Uh, to make a long story short, lucky enough to be involved in a project in South Texas um, as as an intern, and that uh, I was able to meet people 
and get some exposure in that environment. That led to me getting a master's degree uh, at Texas A&M Kingsville, studying white-tailed deer, carrying capacity in that South Texas brush country in that environment. And then after that, kind of moved back east and uh, took a Ph.D. position under Steve Damaris and um, uh, got through that studying uh, big data sets really at that time, uh, the DMAP program, the Deer Management Assistance Program, and uh, had over a half a million harvest records and was just able to go through that and look at uh, trends um, and, and things that are related to, you know, uh, deer herd dynamics. And that was kind of my, my Ph.D. Um, went to work for the Department of Agriculture for a few years after that. And then just really, really lucky that a position opened back up at Mississippi State uh, as the Extension Wildlife Specialist and uh, was fortunate enough to get that job. And I've been doing that ever since 2006, so about 15 years in my, my current position. Wow, that's, that's quite the background. That sounds um, very interesting and very exciting to a bunch of, you know, Dear guys, dear nerds, like like us three are here on the on the show. Um, and when you were back working under under Dr. Steve, where was that at? You said back east. Well, uh, yeah, I should have specified back east relative to South Texas. It was at, at Mississippi <laughs> State, back sure. east in, in gotcha. Mississippi. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, so, well, and then you've been there. Uh, you know, you're back there again in quite a long time now. Um, that's awesome. So it sounds like you like it where you're at. You've been there for a minute. Uh, I'm happy and content as could be. Yeah, Mississippi State has provided a, a wonderful platform for, for me through, through extension. Uh, people are invested in natural resources here in Mississippi, so there's always issues. There's always interest, which drives what I do and what Steve does and the type of research and then outreach we do to get that information out to, to hunters and to biologists and natural resource managers. That's awesome. And I guess I, I could have asked this maybe with Steve, too, but um, what what makes Mississippi State, you know, the, the place for the deer lab? Like, why did that originate there? I'm, I'm sure other universities have programs, but, you know, when we think about it, we think of you guys, and I guess – why is that so common in Mississippi versus anywhere else? I mean, the deer, deer all over. So, yeah. Well, uh, um, I'm not going to take credit for things I've, I don't deserve taking credit for. I, I think a lot of it is history. Um, Steve and I were very lucky to take advantage of the program that Harry Jacobson and David Gwynn had built, you know, in, in the late 70s and 80s. And, uh, through their hard work and effort, they established uh, a deer research facility. So that, that's one thing that, that's a little bit different. There are a lot of places that study deer, but there's less of those that have a, a, a research facility with a confined, controlled population. So that, that's one thing that, that's helped us and, and other institutions as well. There, there's several of them. Um, but having a captive herd certainly helps a lot. Um, one thing that was really, I think, synergistic for Steve and I is um, my job was is relative to outreach. So even though we have a whole lot of overlap in what we do and we work together and collaborate so well, um, 
if you really look at it in terms of what are job requirements, Steve is required to do research. He, he, he's a researcher and a professor and he you know, teaches undergraduate students and graduate students. My job is, is outreach. So us working together uh, on what are the big questions, collaborate on research, and then uh, that's more of his side, and then moving it more to what my requirements are. Mine is figuring out platforms to get that information out. So facilitating things like webinars, uh, developing a, a podcast, uh, doing outreach for popular articles and things like that. So that, that's one of the reasons I think there may be um, – maybe a little more identification with what we do is that uh, it, it's, um, it's the beneficial relationship that we work so well together and what our requirements are. Dr. Strickland, could you explain to our listeners what an extension professor is and what do you focus on at MSU in that position? You, you bet. Um, so at, at risk of – Boring your, your audience, um, <laughs> I, I might give just a little bit more information than you're asking for. Here, here's kind of the bottom line. It, every state has a land-grant university, and as part of that in Mississippi, it's Mississippi State. If you were in Alabama, it would be Auburn, for example. If you were in Iowa, it would be Iowa State. That is your land-grant university. Okay. They are uh, more or less re required, and they're a lot broader than this, but they, they focus on things like historically, if you notice a lot of the land-grant universities used to have the, the tagline A&M, and they were agriculture, mechanical, engineering, things like that. So it was really a part of the university that the outputs are really going to translate uh, and be used by the stakeholders, the citizens. So let's think of less esoteric. Let's think of more management. And uh, as part of those systems over the years was then forestry and then wildlife management and things like that. So what we, at those land-grant universities, you have what is called the extension service. And within extension, it is literally, hence the name, that is the extension of the university to the people. And you'll notice a lot that there will be a county extension office. So that is for someone at a county level to have access to the university. So as part of the extension program is wildlife programming. So essentially my job is I need to have my finger on the pulse of what are the big natural resource management issues within my state and within the region, and then I need to either develop some research to help answer those questions, or if research already exists and the question has been answered, I need to develop an outreach platform to get that information to people. And think of it this way, you know, it's with my job, it's not about equations, it, it's not about explaining it like might be done in a classroom. It's explaining it in a way that people that aren't wildlife biologists and people that aren't academics in ways that they can understand the process and ways they can apply it and use it in on their landscape or in their backyard. So uh, Brian, really kind of from 30,000 feet, extension is all about 
addressing the needs of the people and coming up with an outreach or educational programs and formats to get that information to people so that they can use it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I sort of had a 30,000 foot understanding of it a little bit like in Pennsylvania here when we want to get our soil tested from Penn State University, we go through the county extension. So I appreciate you going into the details of that. I learned a little bit more there and hopefully our listeners did too. And so and the soil testing service, that's probably the best, Brian, the, the best example you can have. That 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 is what a lot of people do. When they get their soil tested, they go to their county extension office, county extension agent, and, and get that submitted. That, okay. That's, that's one of those services, and, you know, it, it goes on and on. For, so even think about youth education, 4-H. 4-H is offered through the extension service. That, that's another very common uh program that people associate with extension. Gotcha. So, Doctor, who are your students, and uh, how do they come to you, and, and what are they working on? Um, right now, we've got uh, several. We've got one named uh, Luke. He's kind of doing a hodgepodge right now. Luke Resop, and um, I always mess up his last name, Resop. I always put the emphasis wrongly. Luke <laughs> Resop. Um, Luke is working on uh, habitat management. He's focusing more on timing of fire is, is what he generally is looking at and, and uh, kind of um, timing of the, the fire and the repercussions and implications on woody stems, for example, but also looking at uh, forb community response and things like that. He's also helping us with some additional analyses from a uh, some previous students, Ashley and Colby, on what we called our, our buck movement project. So he's also helping us with some of that movement data to try to figure out some additional relationships and, and trends with that. Uh, then we have a, a couple students, Bo Navarre and Miranda Huang, who are um, working on a very... The general theme of their project is feeding, supplemental feeding, and the impacts that it can have on the, the vegetative community. Bo is kind of taking more of the plant community response. So what happens when you concentrate deer in an area? What are the implications it can have on the, the plant community? Uh, Miranda is working more on the disease aspect of that. And again, if you concentrate animals, um, what are are we predisposing and facilitating deer to greater uh, parasite loads, transmission of disease, and, and things like that? That's that's really interesting stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing what the results on that, with all the emphasis we have on uh, EHD and CWD going around the country. So definitely going to tune into that for sure. Um, I know it's going to be site-specific, but is there a couple things you can recommend as habitat managers that we should be focusing on first before we get into any of the ancillary topics? Um, yeah, ju just in general, I would say focus on um, the times of year where food is most limited. In, in the south, we have two stress periods. 
and, and believe it or not, that, that comes as a shock, probably more so to people in the South, that late summer is just about maybe even more so nutritionally stressful for deer than late winter. Uh, as you move north in your neck of the woods, you know, late winter is really your big bottleneck nutritionally. Um, so that, that's really kind of where we start is are we providing food uh, 12 months out of the year at, at, as best we can? Um, and, and then really, Brian, from that point, it, we, we get more specifics. Um, then we start moving into things like, it, is it really just food that is limited? Uh, how about cover? Uh, how about, you might say, how about fawning cover? You know, all sorts of issues like that. So we, we really try to start with uh, what is limiting on your property. And let's start with that. Are you in a food-limited environment? Are you in a cover-limited environment? And then we try to figure out what are the best strategies to address those limitations. So, Dr. Bronson, that kind of leads into our, our number three point here. Um, as, as you mentioned, what's, like, the lowest hole in the bucket, right? Site specifically, is it is it food? Is it cover? Um, what do you find to be most common? Is it is it that simple usually, or is there something else across – know that you're always seeing a red flag popping up, whether it's an invasive or, or something else. I guess what are the most common things you see right off the bat? Um, you know, that, that Jared, that, that's a good question, and, and I hate to throw out that it depends and site-specific and so <laughs> forth, but it, it, it really is. So uh, we have some region-specific generalities, and we have some site-specific generalities, and you know, in, in Mississippi, we have a slice of the Midwest in, in terms of how the landscape looks, and then we have a, a, a bigger swath of the southeast and how it looks. So um, in our agricultural region, which takes up about 30% of our state, um, it, it, it literally looks like the Midwest. You know, it is dominated, dominated by, by agriculture. And in those environments, those locations, more often than not, uh, it is a cover-limited situation. So uh, the places where there are forests, it is typically not the best area for agriculture. And a lot, of a lot of times that is because of moisture. It is because it holds water. And so we see some areas where even though there's timber over there, you know, it, it's, uh, it's really, really wet. You can't really develop a really good understory for cover. And, and so you'll see often an, an exodus of, of deer uh, during the hunting season. Uh, the, the plate has been cleaned. Crops have been harvested. Uh, the, the timber stand or the forest in that area really hadn't been managed. And uh, it's a more of a cover-limited environment during, during the hunting season. You, you get into more of our upland areas, which is more uh, representative of the state, and um, it is typically a food-limited environment, and more specifically, a quality food-limited environment. Um, it, it is often also uh, limited by deer density. So in our, you know, we would say our piney woods part of the state, forest-dominated part of the state, uh, you can grow deer uh, in terms of you can, you can really grow a dense deer population. But 
it comes at the expense of having too many deer relative to the amount of good quality food that's available to them. And that is typically where we see body size is limited, antler size is limited. So we kind of have two different, two different fights depending on the part of the state that you're in. Um, so in one part of the state, it's going to be mainly uh, uh, timber sand improvement type activities to get more cover on the ground because food is, food is plenty in our ag region during most of the year. Versus our, our forest-dominated part of the state, it's more about timber sand improvement from a let's get some forbs growing on the ground, let's produce more food, coupled with let's manage our deer population density so that food is not limited. If we, were, if we had the two buckets there, if we had a bucket in that part of the state versus a bucket, uh, those are the two lowest holes. We're, we're plugging the cover hole in our ag region, and we're plugging the uh, quality food in our forest-dominated region. Sorry, Al, I cut you off. No, no problem, Dr. Bronson. Huge fan. Uh, I've read read the Strategic Harvest System books and listened to all the podcasts, and um, I really appreciate what you said earlier about making it easy for uh, a sales guy like myself to understand the in-depth biology uh, that you all cover. So I'm really, really big fan. I, I do have a question specific to what you just covered. Um, you mentioned DMAP earlier. Uh, coming from the state of Ohio, we don't have DMAP programs. They kind of break the state up either by county. Um, previously, it used to be by large regions, like maybe 20 counties, right? And that would say, okay, we're going to shoot five does in that in those counties each each hunter can shoot that many does and what it, it seems to cause is is a lot of kind of consternation between hunters because of course the one guy with really good habitat says man i have more does than i know what to do with and i just can't shoot enough of them and the guy half a mile down the road says i haven't seen a doe in two seasons you know and, and it just is really all over the place so my question is how effective do you believe dmap programs are to having that balance of quality and nutrition um, to also a good quantity of deer. That that's Al. That that's an excellent question. Um, it has been really successful in Mississippi, and probably the the biggest reason for that is that you are getting so many samples from deer uh, throughout the state, and maybe just uh, a, a little bit of background for people that not may not be familiar with the DMAP. Again, DMAP stands for the Deer Management Assistance Program. Uh, essentially, Al, it's an agreement. It's kind of a cooperative agreement between your state wildlife agency and a hunting club or a private landowner, a group of people leasing a piece of property. The, the trade-off is um, the state wildlife agency via a deer biologist is going to provide the landowner or leaseholder with site-specific management information in return for harvest data collected on that property. So in the same program, a biologist can help a landowner understand what's going on with the deer dynamics on their property. You've got too many deer, you don't have enough deer, you need to have some habitat management, you know, really customize the plan for that person and that property. The, the bigger picture uh, or an additional, um, well, how do I say that? Um, big, big picture 
how it really helps the state of Mississippi in this example is that you have these samples from all over the state that you can combine into a into a region and understand if there's big picture regional issues going on. We divide our state up into soil regions. And it's really less about the soil. The soil is part of it, but it's more about the land use activity. It's more about how the forest is management, how the forest is managed and so forth. So we can figure out in certain regions that um, if we've got 15, 20, 50 different hunting clubs in that region and less deer being harvested, body weights are going down, that probably, you know, here are some general things in that region that may need to be addressed with regional regulations. Then, and I think this is uh, really strategic, uh, and a lot of states do this with the, the flexibility in harvest regulations, is often you'll make a harvest regulation that is informed and beneficial at a region level, but then the property has the flexibility to take advantage of it fully or not, depending on what the needs are at their particular property level. Here's an example. It might be that at a region level, more deer need to be harvested. You know, we can tell we have a density problem at the region level. However, at the property level, like Al, you were saying, you might have a, a, a landowner, hunter, you know, I've only seen a couple deer this year. Well, you, you provide a harvest prescription or, or a regulation that if you were in a re, on a property with a lot of deer, you may be able to harvest up to five does this year, but you don't have to. So you might be on a property where, hey, if I'm not seeing, uh, you know, enough deer, then you don't have to take advantage of that. So oftentimes people can be frustrated with, um, hey, here's this regulation and it does not fit for my property. That is not going on. That is not what's going on on my property, but, but you kind of set that to manage at, at a region level, what, what biologists feel and have evidence for what is going on big picture-wise. Albert, yeah, does, that, does that help? Oh, absolutely. And, and just a, a, another question I have on that. See, in Ohio, especially in southeastern Ohio, and Brian probably could say the same, I would think, for Pennsylvania – there seems to be, when you have like large oak and, and hickory timber stands that reach that 30 and 40 year old age structure and large blocks of that that hasn't been cut, it, it seems that the guys who hunted those same areas 30 and 40 years ago talk about great numbers of deer, right? And, and really good quality of deer. And as that forest has grown, you know, they, you hear a lot of the, the people will say, well, we don't see the, the grouse anymore. You know, we don't see the numbers of deer anymore. I'm just curious, in, in Mississippi or if you've seen other studies from maybe some of the northern Midwest states, if there is a correlation to quality of deer and the number of deer uh, in relation to timber harvest? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, deer and, and other wildlife. Um if you think about the life of a timber stand, and it depends on where you're at, it depends on rainfall, it depends on heat and so forth, um, you're looking at anywhere from a 25 to 100-year process 
if you were to, um, let's say it's man-made, you go in and clear-cut a forest, you are going to have, and I'm generalizing with the with Mississippi forest dynamics here, you're going to have five to ten years, depending on what the species of tree is, of you've, you've got some of the best uh, deer habitat in the county. You know, you, you are providing uh, an abundance of food. You're providing an abundance of cover. And then what slowly happens, and this is the process of plant succession, is that over time, trees will dominate the site. Now, that this we're not talking about uh, in a desert situation. We're talking about it in the east where we have rainfall. But eventually, what is going to dominate that site are trees. And so what happens is if, and you've probably all seen this, um, there is this barren landscape for a few years. The trees have been harvested, and what colonizes the site first are, you know, grasses and forbs. And then you start moving three, five, six, seven years, and you start noticing shrubs, bushes. You start then seeing trees start poking their head above the shrubs. Then you start getting at year 10, 15, 20, depending on the species. Now those trees, they are starting to claim the site. And as a process, there's no way around it. What happens is the tree grows above the existing vegetation, and it starts shading out what is beneath it. It starts out-competing it from its root mass. It's extracting a lot of resources. And then the tree canopy starts shading out what's beneath it. Then the trees have captured that site. Why is that important for deer? You may say, well, we want a bunch of old trees. That's good, right? We want acorn production. Uh, of course. Uh, of course we do. But at the same time, think about where is food offered to a deer? Uh, other than acorns being put on the ground, it's from, you know, one foot to three or four feet. That, that's a deer's world. That's where it has vegetation that is accessible to it. So when a forest grows up, when it's 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, and the forest is now, you know, uh, 40, 50, 60, whatever feet high, and they have completely captured the site and shaded everything out beneath it, you no longer have deer food, and you no longer have deer cover. And so that is where you'll see that the deer population will start declining first in quality, and then, uh, and then deer will just be absent. Well, I shouldn't say absent, in very, very low numbers. So, Al, what you said, from what people have said years ago, I absolutely agree with that. Not only do I believe that happened, that, that is going to happen in just about every instance. You're gonna, the forest is going to grow out of, of deer food. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, Dr. Bronson, that, that paints a really good picture as to why it is so difficult for state agencies to manage um, at the regional level because you could have, you know, a, a 500-acre clear cut next to a, a 200-acre farm, and, well, that, that area is probably going to hunt pretty well, you know, at least for the short period of time, whereas half a mile down the road or, or two miles down the road, um, that guy not seeing deer, maybe he's hunting primarily closed canopy forest that hasn't been cut in 50 years. And um, I can just understand why, specifically in, in where I hunt primarily the state of Ohio, there are just such variances in, in what people claim to see as far as deer numbers are concerned. 
So I appreciate you going, uh, covering that. And one of the things I want to ask about as well is kind of a segue a little bit, but some of still on that same topic is, you know, one thing I would say that everybody does today or primary, a lot of folks do is food plots. And, you know, what's your favorite food plot there in, um, in Mississippi? And can you talk a little bit about attractiveness versus protein levels, per, uh, also maybe some uh, mineral availability in those crops? Sure, I, I will certainly try. Um, what, what I think is an just an all-star, cannot-fail recipe uh, in, in most of the South and probably most anywhere is, is I, I typically go through the progression like this. Um, w- w- when I'm working with, with, with hunters is, um, first of all, w- what is your goal? Some people may say, my goal is simply to see deer during hunting season. I'm not worried about nutrition. I'm not worried about providing food. So I just want to see deer. Well, the, the simplest, cheapest way to do that is a cereal grain plot. Cereal grains meaning oats, wheat, rye, something like that. It is going to grow. It is going to grow very well. If your soil has been amended properly in terms of you've had a soil test and so forth, you're going to produce literally thousands of pounds of forage biomass, and deer are going to be attracted to it. They're going to consume it. Now, the next step is, do you want to elevate diet quality do you want to elevate nutrition for deer outside of the hunting season? And, well, sure, I'd love to, they, they typically say. All right, now let's add a clover. And so um, here in the south is you plant clovers in the fall. You really don't get a lot out of them. You're going to see them. Um, they're, they're there, and they're growing and developing those roots. But really the time for, for clover growth and utilization is in the springtime. And that's when the cereal grains are kind of going out. They, they've, they've grown. They're starting to senesce. They're getting of less quality. And now we have now the clovers are coming in to get us all through the spring. So we went from a three- or four-month period now to a six-month period. Additionally, one thing we like to add is, a, um, is something like a, a, a brassica. You know, I, I've had a, a, a lot of good luck with, with rape. And typically that's another one of those kind of when the, the cereal grains, it may have gotten cold, at least cold down here, uh, and they're not growing as much. That's when you'll see, you know, the, uh, the brassicas will, will really take off and, and deer will really be attracted to them and, and utilize them. That, that is really, Al, um, what I always use and some facet of that, some combination, it, it, Always works. A cereal grain, number one, couple it with a clover, add a brassica. That is just going to be, be an all-star plot. Now, one additional thing is, which can come at some cost, is what clovers do you use? And that really entails looking at the maturation date of those clovers and looking at, let, let me contrast two for you uh, that, that work well down here. You may have something like a crimson clover that's going to mature really early. So think of its its heyday of growth is going to be in April. Right, right now for us, you're going to see crimson clover everywhere. You can add another clover to that mix like red clover, 
And here, that is going to carry you all the way to the summertime. And depending on rainfall and temperature, you may still have red clover production in July and August. So one cool season planting can carry you just about 10 months, sometimes 11 months out of the year, depending on, on the weather. And, um, and, and that is the case for not only do I want to hunt over it, but I really want to, to improve diet quality and nutrition on my property. That's what I recommend. That's a fantastic take, and uh, I would say that I'm also on board with all of those crops. I would say, if I had to stick with one crop, I think it would be cereal rye. It's like easy it would grow in the back of a pickup truck. I just love love growing that, and deer just love it here, at least in the state of Ohio. Uh, one question I have for you, Dr. Bronson, and I know uh, – I believe uh, Jason Snavely studied under you. You know, Dr. Grant Woods is really getting into the regenerative agriculture um, ideology, you know, doing really diverse mixes and, and um, you know, learning from people like Dr. Christine Jones, soil microbiologist out of Australia and things like that. But, but just at the high level, with the growth in farmers using cover crops, which specifically in the Midwest, you know, that's a stress period. It's, it's kind of right before that spring green up. And now you have a field that used to be just fallow, right, or, or, or turned under, I guess it would be a better term, is now planted in winter rye or winter wheat or sometimes a, a multitude of species, right? Hairy vetch is a common one that's used around me, um, maybe mixed with some rye grain or something like that. It seems to me like that would just be adding so much additional food to the landscape than these deer really, really ever knew prior to cover crops becoming as popular as they are now, how do you feel that's going to impact white-tailed deer throughout the Midwest and also if they're, they're doing that in the Delta region of Mississippi? Um, I think it is a huge positive impact. It, you know, when we think about, you know, let, let's back up 20 years ago or, or further, and once those crops were taken off the landscape, you have, you know, potentially, you know, hundreds or thousands of acres where nothing is offered. And if, if you are not managing your, your forests or, your, you know, your natural areas, then you, you have, have, have gone from boom to bust. You have gone from there is more food on the landscape than deer can possibly consume to there's not enough food. And so survival can suffer, of course, uh, Body weight, antler quality, the subsequent year can suffer, things like that. So um, just from a deer management perspective, I, I think it is, um, it, it is a huge positive impact. Not to mention, Al, we, we got to think about the soil conservation perspective. You know, we're, we're keeping the soil intact and it's not ending up in a ditch and in the Gulf of Mexico. So... To me, and I'm not a, an expert in, in any way on the, the technology of all that, but again, uh, in general, I, I think it is very, very positive, and I am all for it. Well, it's interesting. Do you feel, and I'm just kind of knee-jerk reaction to that is, do you think that that's going to increase the need for hunters and land managers to shift their focus from maybe uh, monitoring an exclusion fence on a food plot in the wintertime, right? Like now around my farm, we don't really have ag around me currently. So if I have a 
10 acres of food plots and I see three foot is missing, you know, by March, I'm like, man, they, there's a lot of deer here, you know. And then I also obviously take observations on uh, na- native browse as well as, you know, observational sits and trail camera data and things like that to come up with a plan for doe harvest. But my question is, is do you think that as cover crops are planted in more areas, we'll need to not focus as much on exclusion fences within food plots but more so on the pressure that's happening to the native browse in our woodlines to make sure that those deer numbers aren't inflated beyond what really is good for the native, you know, region of, of hardwoods, uh, for example. You know, Al, I, I don't think I would neglect things like the uh, exclusion cages. Um, and, and so we kind of have an issue of, of scale and a, a spatial relationship here with how, how far are those cover crops away? And like like in your case, Al, maybe you don't want deer, you know, going a mile away uh, to consume those cover crops. Maybe you still want to keep deer on your property. So that would be, uh, of course, a case for uh, continuing to plant those food plots, monitor those those food plots. Um, and, and, and yeah, we, we certainly want to monitor the the browse pressure uh, that that deer are putting on the the native vegetation, um, and, and a lot of that, you know, Al, you, you really checked all the boxes there. I was like, that is the that is the way to do it, is that you're monitoring an exclusion cage, you're monitoring your your observation data. Um, and so you're really from year to year and over time trying to figure out the dynamics uh, of that deer herd and what's limiting and what needs to be added. But Al, I, I would say this, during the winter time, as important as that native vegetation is, it is still often going to be limited in December and, and January. And, and that's just you have a cool season food plot, a plant that is adapted to grow and provide the highest quality nutrition during those cold months. You, you typically during that time of the year aren't going to get that level of biomass and quality out of your native forage. I'm not saying neglect it whatsoever. It's still critically important. But, I mean, you you really have an overwhelming amount of high-quality forage in a lot of landscapes with those cool-season food plots. So I I would keep doing what you're doing and not neglect monitoring those. Dr. Bryanson, that was great. Um, This is Jared here. I want to go back to something you were talking about just now and a little bit earlier um, with supplying that that high-level protein and, and quality food during the, the toughest times of the year. Um, when it comes to, to seed choice or, or diverse choices, you mentioned that go-to mix earlier of some, some grains, some clovers, and, and some rape or some radishes. That's, that sounds like a really good mix. Uh, are there any other seed types that you focus on in your area to fill that gap or that void in those tough times of the year? Um. Yes, so there is another gap, but it it is more difficult when you get outside of an an agricultural region, it is more difficult to address energy. So typically, and and there's no doubt that it's important, um, we we focus a lot on crude protein. 
And you, you'll see this on the Internet and when people are talking back and forth, uh, you know, here's this clover, here's this whatever. And, you know, it's 28% crude protein. There's, there's no doubt, no doubt that is really, really important. Um, but, but we do reach a point of diminishing returns with that as well. So, you know, I, I tend to say that when you are, you know, over 20%, you're, you're doing well. You're, you're doing good. Now, now let's focus on making sure we have something 20% uh, crude protein and a lot of biomass of that. And uh, I make that clarification. You know, I, I would rather have 3,000 pounds of biomass of 20% crude protein than 500 pounds of some plant that's 30% crude protein, j- just an example. Now let's get back to the, let's get back to the energy. Soybeans are, are a great example, the, the, the life history and physiology of that plant of at certain times of the year, uh, during the growing season, a soybean to a deer is all about protein, eating, eating the foliage. Um, Later in the year, the plant has senesced, it's produced the grain. Now it's shifting more towards a source of energy with, you know, the seed, the, the, the bean that's produced. Even more so with corn. Corn, uh, through the, the, the growing season, is, is not really attractive to deer, of course. It, it's, it's when it produces the, the seed head, the, the maturation, the ear of corn, now we are producing carbohydrates. We're producing energy. And that's why it is so attractive to, to deer in the, in the winter months. I don't think of carbohydrates um, in the short term. I don't think of carbohydrates as growing antlers. I think of carbohydrates as a source of energy and a source of fat for the deer that will improve their body condition over the winter so that they come into spring in better condition to take advantage of spring green up and then grow their bodies and grow their antlers, etc. However, it, it's a difficult to do for most people if you've got three or four acres, uh, 15 to 20 acres, it's a much more complicated and expensive endeavor, at least in the South, to grow beans and then to keep standing beans during the fall. They're typically just going to get wiped out. And then the same thing for, for corn. You, you really have to know what you're doing to get that corn crop up and plant enough of it so that it's not overwhelmed by the deer herd, um, you know, in the fall. So energy is certainly um, of interest and, uh, and very, very important, but that can be difficult for a lot of our food plot people, at least in the South, to, to manage for. Think of the niche that acorns plays for deer. Acorns are really, you're not providing protein with, with acorns, and, but yet they, but their deer are still so attracted to acorns. And it's the energy that they provide. It is a carbohydrate-rich food source. And when you, you know, from a deer biologist's perspective, you can use carcass fat. It's like you can let the carcass of a deer tell you indirectly if, uh, was this a good acorn year or not. 
but because a lot of that fat that you see on our carcass is, is, is directly related to acorns. So hopefully, Jared, I didn't get too long-winded there, but that's kind of my that, – that's probably the other facet of food plots a lot of people can't really take advantage of is having the – having enough area – and having the, the expertise, and, and frankly, it's expensive, you know, the money to invest in having simultaneously on your property in November and December, having protein-rich, growing, cool-season plants, your clovers, your cereal grains, etc., and then for the attraction of energy, having those standing beans, having standing corn, etc. No, that all makes sense, and I think I was going to ask about mass trees next, so you, you kind of moved into that for me um later in the year though the how how digestible is corn and how does that relate to the woody brows or or your native brows on your property and 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 what percentage of native brows to corn or food plots or carbs are you normally looking for in a healthy environment oh that that's a Tough one, Jared. Um, it is really site specific. Um, golly, I'm not. I'm not trying to avoid your question. Um, I, I typically let the deer carcass tell me if if things are good. Um, if if body weights are up and there is a distribution of fat on the carcass, then um, I think management kind of evolves with that. Um, we, we certainly, certainly want deer to be taking advantage of natural vegetation. We want diversity. If, if there's one thing that is so critically important for deer, it is letting deer select what plants they need. And we, we take, Jared, we, we take cravings for granted. It's just like I'm in the mood for something salty you know for example i'm in the mood for something sweet but with wild animals those typically represent deficiencies either short term or long term that are going on in their body and i have a craving i'm I'm thinking like a deer yeah i've got a craving for a particular food well that that's to address the limitation that that's going on and it might be a micronutrient um and that's the part where having a, a diverse natural vegetation community really addresses that aspect very well, is we're going to let deer select what they want. And so you could really see a situation where you, you probably have seen this before. You think, why in the world are the deer over there and they're not in this either standing corn or food plot? Well, they're, they're browsing on this native vegetation because their body is telling them that, that they need it. They're, they're addressing a, a deficiency. So, Jared, I guess the way I would answer that question very generally is if you can offer all of those, that, that is fantastic. That we have native browse, really, really important. We have native browse uh, during the wintertime. We, we have those food plots that may be offering um, energy. They may be often more, more often they're going to be offering crude protein. And we have also managed our timber or our forests so that we can maximize mass production. 
you, you, you have literally checked every box for a deer nutritionally if, if you do that. That's, that's perfectly answered, I th- and thanks for that. I think um, it kind of had me thinking on, on a question I, I had from a friend yesterday. Uh, you know, he got property here in Michigan that, that these guys have been planting oak trees on for 30 years, right? And, and they don't want to cut any oaks down. They're very proud of the oaks, and there's acorns everywhere every year. Um, but it kind of creates a, a, a monoculture or maybe just a monotony in the forest there. And without cutting any of those oaks and creating any diversity like you mentioned, um, you know, kind of missing the boat on some of this. Um, yeah. Is there, a, is there a percentage in that in that equation there? Is there like a general percentage of maybe you thin out 25% or, or 50% or is that more of a get your local forester in there? Take a walk, explain your goals, that sort of answer. Yeah, yeah, that that that's great, Jared. Good good question. Um, always, I, I should have said this earlier. Anytime we're talking about timber management prescriptions, uh, you need a registered forester to, to to help you make those decisions on the um, the repercussions you're going to have. You may have a wildlife wildlife objective and primarily deer objective. You need to be informed on what are the financial repercussions of your decision. And that is where a registered forester is going to help you with that. So, Jared, um, I can think of two perspectives right now. You could go to that, that oak stand you're talking about, and you could have two different prescriptions. It might be that um, you need to thin this stand because the sand is so dense and you are limiting the growth of the existing trees. That is where more of a, just a, I would say just a forestry thinning is going to help you with, hey, we really want that tree um, to grow that, you know, it has great growth characteristics. That is a money tree right there where you need to release it and let it grow. Uh, Then we have a mass production objective. And uh, Craig Harper and his students did a wonderful, it was like a 10-year study, wonderful study on this. And where they went in, and it will take a little work on the landowner or hunter's part, and that is if I have no interest whatsoever, and, and believe me, there's a lot of people that have no interest in the financial implications of managing a stand of, of oak trees or timber. They just say, I want to maximize food. I want to maximize the utility of wildlife. You also may go in like Craig and his students did and figure out you mark trees that are the good acorn producing trees. And there is no relationship, Jared, with what the tree looks like. So you might look at that tree and go, oh, my gosh, look at the limb, the formation, the canopy. That is a gorgeous tree, and it may be a high-value tree monetarily, and it may be a terrible acorn producer. Meanwhile, you've got this scraggly tree. It doesn't look good at all. It's not aesthetically pleasing tree, and, you know, it's weighted down, you know, every other year with acorns. So it would be going in and identifying those high, reliable, acorn-producing trees, protecting those and thinning the canopy around it. And then you you, uh, produce two things when you do that. Number one, you release 
that tree. No longer does it have canopy competition for sunlight. That tree grows. The canopy develops further. And you're going to have greater acorn production from that tree. And then from the sunlight hitting the ground around the tree, you're also adding some forb and vegetation growth on the ground in the reach of deer. So, Jared, two different strategies you could take there with um, am I doing this to release the trees from a financial perspective, from more of a forest management with a monetary implications, or am I going in and thinning individual tree selection, et cetera, to just improve acorn production? And that's, that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow is thinking, you know, all right, you, you professor, you're telling me you can go into this oak stand and kill a bunch of oak trees and increase acorn production? <laughs> and, yeah, there, there are certainly circumstances where you can do that. Yeah. Yeah, That. thanks for, for going into that, that uh, equation or, or – um... Uh, situation there for me. I, yeah, Dr. Craig's study on that is just eye-opening and, and awesome, and, and I appreciate you hitting on that. So thanks for that. You bet. So, Dr. Bronson, I have one more question for you, uh, and I really appreciate your time today. So I asked Dr. Steve this already. Uh, as I said earlier, I absolutely love strategic harvest systems. I think I wrote you all an email afterwards and put profound or something like that, and you all were nice enough to answer some additional questions I had after reading the book, I, I actually gifted it to two or three buddies of mine, and it was just such an amazing read. I think I read it in a day, uh, the first day I got it, and then reread it again. One thing I, I always get when I'm, I'm kind of sharing some of the data points that were shared in that book is somebody always likes to play devil's advocate, and the question that they've asked is, if it's so important to balance available nutrition to the population of deer within a habitat, why is it that if I go to downtown Cleveland or Cincinnati or Columbus, these white-tailed deer can have some huge racks in fairly degraded habitat, or so it seems, uh, and high deer densities? And is it just strictly a function of age, um, or is maybe the habitat in those areas a little bit better than, than we're anticipating because of fertilized lawns and things? What is your take on that? Um, Al, first of all, Thank you. <laughs> I do remember uh, the, the feedback we got from you, and we really, really uh, appreciate that. Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, in a lot of these suburban environments and sometimes even urban environments, uh, the population can be propped up artificially. That, that, that's one thing. Um, you know, so th they are being offered food in some form that may not be apparent to you driving by at 30 or 40 miles an hour, whether somebody's got a feeder, whether it be gardens, whether, you know, it, it, it goes on and on. Um, the, the other aspect, though, Al, again, you're, you're exactly right, is they got old. And, and that may be the, the, the most simple thing there is that, when, you know, when I'm given a, a seminar, Al, I think this is so instructive. It's, it's one of the few slides I've come up with over the year where I think I get the most, oh, oh, I didn't think of it that way. And, and, I, and I work backwards, and here's how it goes. is um, I'll do a little show of hands, and I'll have a 150-class um, a buck at maturity 
five years of age or older. What was his Boone and Crockett score at three years of age, or three and a half years of age? And a lot of people will say, well, oh, you know, 140, 145. You know, no, it, it's probably in the 120s. Uh, it may be in the high one teens. All right, I'll say, all right, how about this uh, 170 class buck? How big was this 170 class buck or 160 class buck at maturity? And I get, well, it's probably 150 or like, no, it, it was probably high 120s, maybe low 130s. I, I say that, Al, to make the point that those last couple years growing from three to four to five and five to six, et cetera, that could be another 20 inches of antler, which is just demonstrating the importance of when those bucks get to maturity. The importance of age is absolutely critical. So if you're in an environment, uh, this suburban environment, and maybe there is some natural vegetation in the woodlots, absolutely. There's also some supplemental feeding probably going on, absolutely. Um, but simply that buck getting to be five or six years of age uh, is really, really a big deal. Taking them over that threshold from just being kind of an average, yeah, there's a 120-class buck to, a, oh, my gosh, you know, that's a 150 or 160 or 170. It's probably because he's six years old. It's, it's probably the simplest answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again. Uh, Dr. Brown's a huge fan, huge fan of the book, and uh, I really appreciate your time today. I'll uh, pass it on over to Jared to finish up. All right, Dr. Brown, so we have one more quick question for you. We asked this of all of our, our guests, if you wouldn't mind. Well, I don't know what your, your favorite tree is. It could be for, for planting on your property. It could be for hunting in, um, habitat-wise. Just want to hear what your favorite tree is. We get some pretty cool answers. Jared, can I give you two? I'd love it. Please do. Okay. Um, from a hunt, from a strategizing perspective, in other words, where I want to hunt, and let's say again in my neck of the woods, I'm going to say you know in a November, December, if I can find a swamp chestnut oak tree, um, that is one of my favorites. Uh, a lot of times it'll be a, just a couple trees. You're not going to have this big, you know, group of them, but it might be two or three trees or just one tree. And every afternoon you just hear them dropping those acorns every few minutes. And it's a real successful place to bow hunt. So that's one I, Jared, I always, when I'm doing a little fall walk in the woods, or maybe I'm coming back from hunting and I'm like, oh, there's a swamp chestnut. Go look at it. Am I seeing any sign around it? Like, yep, I'm going to take a note. That's where I'm going to, that's where I'm going to climb. Now, when it comes to climbing, here's the other side of it. As much as I and other people in the Southeast, as much as we badmouth sweet gum, it's probably my favorite tree to climb. Um, it, it's the, the bark of it and it usually has some moss on it and so forth. And so from a climbing stand perspective, I love a, a sweet gum tree because it grips the stand really well. And you don't get a lot of that noise from it when you climb. It's, it's one of the most quiet trees that, that you can climb in, in a climbing stand. So 
Without thinking about it further, uh, probably, uh, you know, driving around tonight, it'll hit me and go, God, why did you say that? You should have said this. But that, that's kind of my knee jerk right there. Swamp chestnut to hunt over a sweet gum to hunt in. Well, I appreciate the answer. Thank you very much. The, the sweet gum is a new one. That's for sure. Um, I, I can understand that. It's like trying to use a climber on a shag bar kicker or something. It's like, why do I even do this? So, yeah, that, that is a, a great a great idea with that sweet gum. And, and Dr. Bronson, I just want to thank you one more time for spending your, your time with us today. Um, everybody needs to go buy your book at, at Amazon or wherever you can find it online. Just type in Strategic Harvest System. Great book. I have my copy sitting here. And, and for anyone else who wants to find you guys and learn more about you, go ahead and um, tell them where they can go. Yeah, you, you bet. We, um, we're probably not on every single platform, social media. That seems like that changes once a week. But <laughs> in, in the most popular ones, I, I guess that, that adults use, uh, we're, we're not on TikTok. Uh, but uh, we're on Facebook. Just go to in Facebook, MSU Deer Lab. And we, we put out a lot of information there. And, and Twitter and Instagram, of course. We have a, uh, a pretty diverse website. We really tried to make our website uh, not only a little bit about us, but also very common questions. We tried to make our website very educational. So you can get a lot of information there, just msudeerlab.com. And much like we're doing now with a podcast, we, we have a, a podcast called Deer University. And kind of our niche with, with the podcast is that it's all about deer biology and management. So, Jared, like a, a lot of the topics we're talking about today, we, we really try to frame it around uh, uh, the ecology, biology, and management of deer and then the repercussions that that has for, uh, you know, your management on your, on your landscape and then also your hunting. So we're all about, you know, here's the ecology and biology of deer. Here's how you use it for your objective and what you want to do. That's great. And and I can vouch and, and say knowing and understanding those different, you know, the ecology and biology, the science behind the white-tailed deer does help you make your management decisions. So, I, Jared, I, can I do one more quick plug? Yes, please. Um, along with that, something we launched back in December is we, we expanded the, the Deer University platform and, and we added some other podcasts that aren't deer-centric. Um, we have one called Fire University. For those people that want to learn about incorporating prescribed fire on their landscape, we, we have got a podcast devoted to fire, all things fire. It's called Fire University. For those interested in just more specific, you know, every single podcast, more about habitat management, again, from a biology, ecology kind of perspective, we have Habitat University. And for those that are, of course, interested in aquatics as well, you got a pond on your property or something like that, we have Pond University. So we've tried to take the same theme of uh, with extension, like how Brian started us off, um, the theme of taking this university information and, and how do we apply it in ways that, that everyone can use it for, for their benefit. Yep, the Natural Resource University. That's a great network you guys came out with, and, and we follow along. So appreciate you, you bringing that up. Thanks, Jared. No, thank you, and um, again, appreciate your time, and we'll be in touch soon. Keep in touch, and uh, you know, enjoy your spring, and have a great day. Thanks, Dr. Strickland.
Thanks. Happy to help anytime. Awesome. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. Thank you.